If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 24. Psalm chapter 24. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer and ask for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we indeed do need help. We need help to understand Your Word. We need help to apply Your Word. And so we pray indeed that Your Spirit, who is present among Your people, would indeed descend upon us now to give us eyes that can see, ears that can hear, minds that can know, hearts that can embrace, and hands and feet that can be strengthened to fight the good fight of faith and run the race that is set before us. Father, we thank you for not leaving us alone on this journey home, but giving us your word and spirit. And we pray that they would be active now as we come before you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're at week number 24 in our ongoing summer series, seeing all of life as worship through the Psalms. And I think we're going to get through Psalm 27 uh, this year before taking a break until next summer. And I want to uh, begin by asking a question. And it sounds pretty simple and like, well, why does it even need to be asked? But uh, stay with me. What is your view of God. What is your view of God? It, it really is a matter of life and death. Now think with me for a moment about a true crisis moment. Everything stops until the crisis is addressed. The problem is, is solved as it were. Uh, for example, when the house is on fire, what is the one important thing? Get out. Right? Get out. When extreme weather comes upon you, what is, what is the one thing? Find shelter. Find shelter. If there's an automobile accident and you see people are injured, what is the one thing to do? Not try to figure out the make and model of the car. No, call 911. Get help. It's amazing, isn't it? As crisis really do put trivial things to the side and bring what's absolutely essential, what's absolutely important, right to the center, right to what needs to be addressed. For those of you that got the email this week, uh, the something or the uh, church quote of the week, it was uh, from A.W. Tozer. And here's a couple of the things he said in that introduction to his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Is he exaggerating? Is that true? He says this, What man in his deep heart conceives God to be like is what he, he thinks he's like. And he says this, We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. What is your view of God? J.I. Packer in his magnificent book, Knowing God, has to start off with that as well. He, he says the, talks about the importance of knowing the one true and living God. And then his whole 
book is, is just a magnificent bringing together the Scriptures that talk about God. Again, what is your view of God? It's a question that sadly needs to be asked because today, as it was in years past, there is a, a crisis of knowing the God who is there, to borrow a title of a book by Francis Shaver. The God who is there. You can try to ignore Him. You can try to push Him off to the side. He is the God who is there. And today, Psalm 24 will help us gain or regain, as it were, a biblical view of God and bring it, I believe, into a sharper focus. Here we are in the Psalms, those 150 songs and hymns, poems that God's people wrote and that have been compiled. They are once familiar and yet foreign, written a long time ago in a place far away. They are diverse and yet unified because they all center upon the one true and living God and they help express the divine human encounter. And as we read the Psalms with faith, we come away transformed and not just informed. And the Psalms are important for worship. They give voice to our worship of God. Worship indeed is formative. It is transformative. Biblically grounded and guided worship. Worship that is God-focused, Christ-centered, and Spirit-enabled helps to form and shape our lives, especially with God in view. Corporate worship changes us from who we were to who we are becoming and one day we will fully and finally be. Corporate worship as we are doing today on the Lord's Day serves to reorient us and to realign us. And what do I mean by that? Worship as reorientation. In the case of false gods that are all around us beckoning for our admiration, our attention. Worship helps to reorient us away from the false gods. It's in, in one sense the move from unbeliever to believer. But worship is also a realignment. Because we all have a tendency to worship the one true and living God falsely with mixed motives. So realignment helps us to grow and mature as believers. Remember Luther, Martin Luther, the great reformer, saw in the Psalms that it was a mini Bible. It was a, a, a Bible in miniature. And John Calvin, the, another reformer, said that it's an anatomy of all the parts of a soul. We've already seen how the Psalms are like a mirror. In particular, we saw that in Psalm 15, a spiritual CT scan. But the Psalms are also a window. And here in Psalm 24, I believe there's going to be a spiritual lens through which we can see God. Through which we can view God. Psalm 24 is a psalm of revelation. Telling us who the Lord is. And calling us to respond to that revelation. Now the background of Psalm 24 is it's a processional liturgy of the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant which symbolized 
the presence of the Lord in the history of Israel. The ark moving into Jerusalem. The mark, the uh, ark moving later into the temple. And this could have been composed as a time of annual celebration of those historic events in the life of Israel. Now there's a somewhat diverse background. You can read in 1 Samuel 5, 6 and in 2 Samuel 6 about David's bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. Here, despite what may be a little bit of varied circumstances, there is a unified theme as we will see. By what right do we, people, enter God's presence? And by what right does He come among us? Last week we were in Psalm 23. And remember how Psalm 23 ended? And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, the placement of Psalm 24 beside Psalm 23 is not accidental. It's probably in view of prescribing who indeed may enter, who may dwell. Join with me now as I read Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. If you were listening closely, you may notice that Psalm 24 ends with a five-fold reference to the King of glory and twice asks the question, who is this King of glory? Psalm 24 provides three answers to the question, who is this King of glory? He is the God who is awesome, who is approachable, and who arrives. First, let's look at the first couple of verses. The God who is awesome. The earth is the Lord's. That's English. Hebrew goes like this. The Lord. The earth is His. The Lord is emphatic. It's emphasized right at the beginning. Drawing our attention to the Lord. As this psalm will help reveal to us the Lord. These verses affirm the majesty 
and the mastery of the Lord. They display His power. These first two verses set the scene by affirming the Lord's majesty and His mastery. His awesome power. First of all, God is awesome in His creative work. God is awesome in creation. I want to skip down to verse 2. The physical earth and the peopled world. You've probably seen the, the pickup trucks or the, um, or the construction vans around town, right? It's, it's some company that calls themselves a design and build company. I used to find that interesting, right? Uh, design and build. What does that mean? Well, it means that they've got the capability to, to design it and they've got the capability to build it. You don't have to go to a separate design firm and then a construction firm. No, together they design and build. And this is the Lord. He designs, as this gives allusions back to Genesis 1 and the creation account, that God is the creator. This is his creative work and he is awesome in it. Um, our catechism asks a couple of good questions that need to be asked. What is the work of creation? And it provides a great answer. And it goes on. How did God create man? And here you see that. He, uh, the, the world and those who dwell therein, both creation materially and creation, as it were, the people, the, the high point of His creation. But not only is God awesome in His creative work, God is awesome in His providential work. And we see that again. The world, he, he, the earth is the Lord's. He owns it. And the fullness thereof. In other words, the, the sign on the van, the sign on the pickup truck says this, design and build and maintain. And our shorter catechism, question 11, says this, what are God's works of providence? And it answers this, God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. God executes His decrees in the works of creation and providence, and we, we see that. God is awesome in His creation, His creative work. He's awesome in His providential work, His maintaining of the creation. In other words, God is awesome in His sovereign ownership. God is the creator, He's the maker, He's the owner. Have any of you all ever written an article and seen somebody else copy your work and claim it for their own? Yeah, it's not good. That's why we have copyright laws. How about any of you one day want to make a product, right? And what do you do with a product that you make? You get a patent or you get a trademark. Why? Because you made it, you own it. We all know that feeling of making something and then someone not thinking it is ours, right? Here, God is the maker. He's the creator. He's the owner. He is to be acknowledged as the supreme sovereign over all the world. And because of who He is and what He is, the groundwork is being laid that no one should dare intrude uninvited or propose their own entry into the presence of this God. 
We see in Psalm 24 that the God who is awesome is also the God who is approachable. Now stop with me and think for a moment that the same God who has declared Himself to be awesome in creation, ownership, He's also the God that's going to declare Himself as also being approachable. Who would be able to stand and approach and and be in the presence of this awesome Creator God? Now some have, I believe, rightly seen a connection with Isaiah 6 where Isaiah the prophet has the vision of the thrice holy God and how does he respond? Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He's seen the holiness of God and he recognizes that he is done for. If the Lord is that mighty, that holy, who can possibly meet Him? Who can possibly stand in His presence? We're going to see now in the next few verses these requirements. And they are requirements that are moral, primarily boils down to obedience to God as we saw in detail in Psalm 15 earlier this summer. Look at the questions asked. These are important and essential questions to ask and answer. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? It's interesting. The earth is the Lord's, right? He owns it. And yet there's a sense now is there's a special place. A special place to which people are going to dwell. To ascend. To go up to where the Lord is as we see in Exodus 19. To stand to rise, as it were, in worship as we see in Exodus 33. Questions are asked and answers are given, and we see comprehensive qualifications. First of all, the requirements are personal. They, they require personal integrity. Who's, who, can, who can ascend? Who can stand? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has clean hands, right actions, the right activity, the outward actions. But not just outward, the inward, the pure heart, the right attitudes, the character. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount brings this to bear. Blessed blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Psalm 24 is probably in the background of Jesus' thinking as He's teaching about the kingdom of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And indeed, coming into the presence to be with, to see God. The requirements are not only personal, requiring personal integrity, they are spiritual. Look how it continues. Who does not lift up his soul to what his faults. In other words, this person is not an idolater. It's loyalty to the Lord alone. It's the love of God. It's the first table of the law. The first four commandments. Loving God. 
But the requirements are not only personal and spiritual, they are social. It requires social integrity. Look how it continues. And does not swear deceitfully. In other words, this person has relationships with others without a hidden agenda of personal advantage. In other words, this person loves their neighbor. The second table of law. It's interesting, as I was working through this, there's the relationship with God, loving God. There's the relationship with neighbor, loving neighbor. And you see that again in verse 4. Personal integrity, spiritual integrity, social integrity. And notice what happens to, to this person. Verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Notice that, it, that he will receive blessing. It does not say, and it could have said, he will achieve blessing. No, he will receive blessing in the form of righteousness. He will receive righteousness he will be acquitted, as other scriptures will say, acquitted before the judge. But it goes on to say, righteousness from the God of His salvation. The judge, in other words, is also the Savior. Our text continues in verse 6, Such is the generation of those who seek Him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. A generation, a, a group of people united by a common characteristic. Seeking your face, desiring the presence and blessing of the Lord. And did you see this? The generation of those who seek Him. Now, my mind immediately went to the passage that says there is none who seek God. But there's a tension in there in Scripture about seeking because over and over again we are told to seek the Lord while He may be found. To, to, to seek the Lord. To seek God. Again, such is the generation of those who seek Him. But there's a healthy tension, of course. Well, does anybody really seek the Lord? But we're called to seek the Lord. Whenever we face a tension like that, it's a time to stop and think and reflect and ask ourselves, is that me? Am I just going to dismiss myself as being, yeah, one of those who doesn't seek the Lord? Or am I one of the ones that's hearing that call to seek the Lord? David, the scripture writer here, the psalmist attributes it that it's a generation, a group of people that seek the Lord. Now in this second section, we've seen the conditions that are required for someone to be in the presence of the Lord. It's also more, I think, than who can come into the presence, it's who can stay in the presence. Because anybody can barge in, as it were. Scripture's got a lot of examples of what happens when that's the case, but, but who can be in the presence of the Lord? Now in this final section, we see the credentials that are possessed by the Lord Himself. Not 
the credentials of the person coming into the presence of the Lord, but as it were, the credentials of the Lord coming into the presence of the person. The last few verses I've entitled, The God Who Arrives. You may notice in your outline, I think it said, The God Who Will Arrive. And as I thought about that more in view of all of Scripture, I thought, wait a minute. It's the God who has arrived, it's the God who is arriving, and it's the God who will arrive. And so I think a better way to look at it is the God who arrives. You'll notice in these last few verses a dialogue, a back and forth between the one arriving and the ones to whom the arrival comes. There's a personification giving human characteristics to gates and ancient doors. They have heads and they can be lifted up. There is a a metaphorical image of a joyous welcoming of God pictured as a victorious king returning. In this section, you will see a demand for entrance. We see that in verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. There's a demand. And then there is a request for credentials. Uh, Why should I let you in, as it were? Um, It's almost in the form of a knock-knock joke. But this is no joke. This is a matter of life and death. And the credentials are given. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. It's again asked at the end. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Their credentials are given. It is the Lord who redeems His people and overthrows His foes. Whereas the right of the people had to be demonstrated to come into the presence of the Lord. Here the psalmist David is saying God's credentials are self-evident. He is the awesome and approachable God. He is the victorious King. At the very end we see The Lord of hosts, it's relatively infrequent and when it is used, it gives the idea of the one leading in battle as the ark of God went out before God's people. You see here the approach and the arrival. Verses 1 and 2 celebrate God as creator. And here in the last few verses, 7 through 10, we see God celebrated as Victor, And you can just imagine this psalm being used in the corporate worship of God's people celebrating the ark, that symbol of the presence of the Lord being brought into Jerusalem, being brought into the temple eventually. You see the pilgrims entering the temple and you see the ark entering the temple. This language of lifting up your heads, O gates, and lifting them up, O ancient doors, it poses the question for us. When we think about the Lord God, will we recognize Him for who He is? Will we recognize Him for being the Creator? Will we recognize Him as being the mighty warrior who is, as it were, the finisher, the consummator? Now we've got to look 
for the next few minutes at this psalm through the lens of the New Testament because it just doesn't make sense on its own. It leaves us hanging, doesn't it? The Christian use of this psalm has historically been looking at the ascension. The ascension of Jesus into heaven, the return of Jesus in heaven after His resurrection is is an often neglected part of of Christology, the study of the person and work of Jesus. But it's neglected to our um, detriment because here is this language that's fitting of Jesus returning from where He came as the victor who has completely defeated sin and death and is welcomed into heaven. But it's also been sung as an Advent hymn as well. In fact, I believe that's where it is in our Trinity hymnal. It also can be sung as a hymn of, uh, on Palm Sunday of Jesus' entry to Jerusalem. It's, it's all about Jesus entering and returning. And of course, it draws our attention once again to the fact that when the psalmist asked the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? There's only one man, only one man who has clean hands and a pure heart. There's only one man who in no way, shape, or form lifted up his soul to what is false. There's only one man who does not swear deceitfully. And that man, and that man alone is welcomed in to the throne room. He's welcomed into the presence of the Lord as a victorious conqueror over sin and death. Jesus is the King of glory. Five times it asks, who is this King of glory? It's, it's Jesus. He is the God who arrives. He's the God who has arrived in the flesh, who's arriving now in the power of the Holy Spirit and who is promised to return in glory as the conquering King. Now I want us to go back to a small detail that I intentionally passed by earlier. And what is that detail? Turn with me to verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Well, oftentimes we'll hear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, fathers in the faith. Well, why just Jacob? This is a really tough text in the original language because Jacob just kind of shows up in the text. And there's some ways of, well, is it, what is it communicating? What is it saying? Some translations, the God of Jacob. Some translations, uh, just uh, like Jacob or just Jacob by himself. Like Jacob? Are you kidding Jacob, a model for us? Lying, cheating, scheming? Jacob? Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob? Are are you kidding? Yet, we read earlier, Genesis 32-26, he says this, I will not let you go until you bless me. There's a seeking... Later, a few verses later, verse 30, 
For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. God is the God of Jacob, the God of the man who held tightly to God and would not let God go until he was blessed by God. In this, Jacob is our model, for he held on to God for dear life. God's people hold on to God for dear life. We are desperate for Him. We have nowhere else to turn. And my friends, of course, the good news, as we are holding tightly on to God Himself, He is holding on to us. And so I want us to rest in the good news that Psalm 24 brings. Rest in the good news that the God that you are called to seek is the God who has sought you and found you. I want us to rest in the good news that through Jesus Christ, you have access to this awesome and approachable God. Jesus Himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Jesus is all access to God. And we see that in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes this, For through Jesus Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father, Because my friends, none of us are going to gain access despite our very best efforts apart from faith in the one who was clean and pure, didn't, given the opportunity to worship other gods, refused. Given the opportunity to lie, to cheat, to steal, refused. We have access through Him because In Scripture in general and in Psalm 24 in particular, we have a window through which to see the Lord. He is the awesome God. He is the approachable God. And He is the God who arrives. So again, let's ask ourselves this question. What is your view of God It really is a crisis moment. Everything else should be put aside. What is your view of God? Do you see this King of glory to which this psalm points? Because in in the Scriptures, it's clear this King of glory is none other than Jesus. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, these amazing words. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, there is God awesome in His creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is recreation. My friends, This God who is awesome is indeed approachable. And He welcomes us into His presence through faith in Jesus. 
Jesus announced that the kingdom of God is at hand. And then He said this, Repent and believe in the Gospel. My friends, that was Mark's summary of Jesus' first message. And it's a good summary of today's psalm. Repent from your sin. Repent from your strivings in and of yourself. Repent from lifting up your um, soul to what is false. Repent from swearing deceitfully. And turn to the one and only clean, pure, perfect, obedient man. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we live. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for helping us gain a better and clearer view of who You have revealed Yourself to be. Father, You are the Creator. You are the Owner. We are by right of birth to give You loyalty and obedience. But Father, we have an even greater reason to do that because we see that those who seek You receive a righteousness not of their own because they are acquitted by the Judge who is also the Savior. Father, we praise You for Jesus. And Father, we praise You that in the midst of living in a sinful and a fallen world where we are weary, we are tired, we have a mighty champion. We have Jesus, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Oh, Father, would you enable us to indeed place our trust in him, for we pray in his name. Amen.